Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. We're talking about the Plant Hardiness Zone Map this hour. That's the rainbow-colored map of the United States that gardeners use to determine which plants will thrive in their backyards. And it's been updated. Ohio is predicted to be a little warmer than it once was, and that means we're moving up zones. That also means maybe we can experiment with growing new plants, and it raises questions about climate change and how our weather might continue to change in the coming decades. Joining me now to kick off our conversation on the Plant Hardiness Zone map is Aaron Wilson, an atmospheric scientist and professor at Ohio State University. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you, Anne. It's great to be here. So the USDA created the first zone map in 1960, and it gradually became the standard for figuring out what wouldn't wouldn't thrive in your garden. It's like on that tag when you buy a plant, and it like shows you the zone map for the plant. And it's been updated a few times since its inception in 1960, um, and we keep getting warmer. Is that correct? Yeah. So certainly the trend has been generally across much of the United States. Annual average temperatures are increasing. Uh, we've seen that here across the Midwest and Ohio, anywhere from a half to two degrees warmer than, say, the early part of the 20th century. And the maps are based on the lowest average winter temperature over 30 years in a specific location. Basically, that means we have milder winters, right? Yeah, and, and certainly the trends that we've seen uh, seasonally, winters are, are getting warmer much faster than, say, our summer times, uh, winter and spring. And again, this map looks at that. What's that coldest temperature we reach uh, on average over the a 30-year period? Uh, this is based on 1991 to 2020. Um, I refuse to admit that's been 30 years, but Yeah, I know. I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's the 30-year window that, that the National Weather Service uses for you know normal temperatures on today or, or daily basis, and that's also the period uh, that was used to update this map. So in 2003, we got about half a zone hotter, and now we're getting another half a zone hotter. Uh, should we expect to see another shift by, say, like 2043? Yeah, so our, our projections certainly show that. We see uh, projected winter temperatures to continue to trend upward over the next uh, you know, 40 to 60 years. I think some of the projections uh, with uh, National Climate Assessment and, and other sources will show, you know, likely to project well into Zone 7 uh, for much of Ohio, maybe even nosing into Zone 8 in some places, uh, southern and eastern Ohio by, say, uh, mid to late t- uh, 21st century, right? But it does bring up all the questions of can I grow these things and how dependable is that overnight low temperature during the wintertime uh, year to year? Yeah, I want to kind of talk about what that means. So the long-term models, which we were just talking about, indicate that Ohio summers will feel similar to the current summer weather in southwestern Kentucky by 2030, and that Ohio winters could feel similar to what they get in southern Virginia. And I think that's like, we can talk about degrees and temperatures, but I think that's kind of a better gauge, right? Be like, it'll kind of feel like Southern Virginia in the winter. Yeah. And I think you mentioned 2030, right? That's not that far from now, right? So it is not that far from now. And if we look at projections even out toward the 21st century, we look at like Arkansas summer. Yes. North Carolina winter. um, 2095. That's right. At least that's what my notes say. (laughs) Yeah. And so that, yeah, it brings up the, you know, obviously we think about those modern day conditions and what they're growing there, what the gardens look like, what the crops look like and and brings up those great um, questions about what are we growing here in Ohio in the future. So I want to dive into those rainbow bands on the specific map here in Ohio. So in the updated map, no part of Ohio is zone five anymore, correct? Yeah, I... I, um 
Yeah, I believe that's, Which would be that's the coldest the zone. Yes, correct. We still had some lingering five kind of B. It's broken down into half zones, right, which are basically zero to five degree Fahrenheit warming. Uh, and now we're, we're all in six, mostly in six, um, or all in six and a little bit in seven. So. Yeah. So in the 2023 map, about half of Ohio is zone 6B. And the other half is 6A. And then for the first time, parts of Southern Ohio are 7A. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, specifically this this tool, again, isn't necessarily meant to describe climate change over the long term period. But I think it is an indicator of how things are changing, obviously, uh, and, and nosing up into zone 7 there. Again, it brings up the question of how often... Uh, you know, would a winter kind of reach that zone seven, but maybe slip back to zone 6B or 6A occasionally from year to year, uh, depending on those cold temperatures. Um, this this winter, I think Columbus's officially coldest temperatures, uh, six degrees Fahrenheit, a couple days back in, uh, or sorry, the coldest low temperature uh, back in January, I think 15th and 20th, we hit six. So, you know, technically that would be, uh, you know, even above that 7A threshold. So again, year to year can vary, but this is looking at averages over a 30 year period. And I want to let you know that Ohio's garden sage, Deborah Knapp, is joining us in the second segment uh, to answer questions about what this will mean for the vegetables and flowers and plants that you grow in your garden. But if you have questions about what this all means, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513 or email allsides at wosu.org. Okay, so how big of a deal is it climate-wise, to see this kind of change over this period of time? That's a great question. Um, I, I think it's, it is, you know, just another line or another piece of evidence that, that we can see in, in, in a long kind of really big uh, toolbox of changes or indicators that we see uh, in impacts on, on agriculture, impacts on horticulture. Uh, it's, it's, it's just one kind of indicator that things are changing and shifting, generally shifting north and west. Um, and it also brings in, you know, other questions about that, that we've seen increased potential in pest pressure, disease pressure, because it's not just the crops or the plants that, that may be growing in more southern latitudes now, but also the pests and insects and bugs that come along with it as well. We have a bug guy coming up at the end of the hour yeah. to talk about that. Uh, I want to ask about cities, because one of the fascinating things I learned in preparing for this show was that the zone maps have gotten detailed enough to show fluctuations around bodies of water and major cities. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so that was a big update. I think the previous map had uh, close to 8,000 weather observations or weather stations, and this map is over 13,000 weather stations were used to update uh, that information. One thing we know about cities uh, is they tend to be warmer, right, than the more rural areas outside, uh, which is going to affect the, the horticulture. It's going to affect the, the plants that are growing in those cities. So if, if you look at the map of, of Ohio, you can see sort of that uh, 6B nosing up into the Dayton metropolitan area, up into the Columbus area, and then again up into Cleveland and Akron area, whereas much of our rural counties are still in that 6A zone. And so, you know, any any time in the winter, you know, in the wintertime and even in the summertime, obviously with urban heat islands, you, you get warmer conditions where you have more built material. Uh, and, and oftentimes those things are giving off heat. So those those are more, you know, increased sources of heat in more urban areas compared to our rural areas that allow that heat to escape back to sca uh, space at night, which is you know, we talk about what's called radiational cooling or cooling efficiently at night. Um, and so those rural areas tend to be a bit cooler. So we know that's going to affect, right, what plants are growing, weeds, and, and anything that is affected by temperature. Will growth in central Ohio, essentially more houses, less farmland, 
impact the way we experience our weather or what kind of plants oh, we grow? There's a lot to unpack in that question, right? <laughs> so I think Columbus is is asking itself, right, collectively, how will we develop? Are we going to uh, spread? Are we going to build up? That's going to, you know, how we develop is, is, is certainly going to impact um, urban heat islands. It's going to impact, you know, questions about how much green infrastructure are we putting in? How, ma- how much, you know, what does our tree canopy look like in Columbus? Uh, you know, uh, all of those questions about how we develop, right, um, play into what how we feel and how we might experience climate and climate change here uh, in the city. And so it, it is, um, you know, climate is just one piece. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, it, it is a human story. It's how we interact with these changes, how we interact with our environment. Uh, and if we do it in a way that we can continue to, to have the crops and plants and things that we want uh, in, in a healthy, sustainable way, I think that that's the ultimate goal. I want to talk about the nuance uh, in the maps because they are averages. So I believe 6A is like zero to negative five, right? Six or And 6B is negative five to negative 10. And that's like the average winter temperature. But that doesn't mean that you can't get a super cold day. No, not at all. Uh, let's think about last December, December, uh, I should say the December before, December 23, 2022 where we went from about 42, 43 degrees. We dropped 50 degrees in about 12 hours. I think we settled around minus 8, minus 10. Uh, and, it actually and, killed some of my plants. Right, I was not right. happy. <laughs> I, and, and, and I'm not the expert in terms of horticulture and crops, but just thinking, man, there's a lot of bananas around, uh, you know, hardy bananas and things like that. But just thinking about protecting those roots, right? Protecting those those things that um, uh, make those temperatures make it a little bit, you know, more difficult for those crops to overwinter when you see those extremes. And so thinking about that, um, you know, what we talk about from a research perspective is, is um, you know, the balance between cold and warmer air and, and warm air surging in the Arctic. And that cold air often, you know, has to go somewhere. So it spills down into the eastern United States or, or into Europe. Western Europe, and you can get these cold extremes, even in a trend toward a warmer uh, global temperature. And so that's, you know, what we're seeing there in terms of a very active jet stream and a lot of that, you know, um, uh, colder air spilling down in times in these very cold Arctic air breaks. That's Aaron Wilson, a state climatologist at oh. <laughs> the state climatologist of Ohio and an atmospheric scientist and professor at Ohio State University. We're talking about the plant hardiness zone map, that rainbow colored map that you see on plant tags when you buy them at a nursery that tells you whether it's going to grow in your area. And if you want to join our conversation about what the changing zones mean for your garden and for climate change, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513 or email allsides at wosu.org. So long-term models indicate that we are going to get more of a North Carolina, Southern Virginia feel. And on the one hand, I'm like, oh, longer growing season. Sounds cool. But I mean, that represents just a big change for native flora and fauna, right? Yeah. And it really brings up the question, um, I I think, immediately about what our natives are, what our natives will be in the future, and how do we manage those resources in a very responsible way. We, uh, a lot of folks, when, when it deals with, you know, deal with climate change, thinking about trees, for instance, we, we see big latitudinal shifts in trees, and we're planting trees now for the benefits in many years to come, right? So thinking about uh, programs and processes like assisted migration, tapping into southern nurseries and di- introducing different species. We know, uh, like the Hamilton County Metro Parks in southwest Ohio, um, uh, 
thinking about things like southern magnolias or even sequoias where the things oh, are wow. really wet, right? So introducing, you know, much of what we do and we think about climate smart agriculture, but also climate smart horticulture or climate smart gardening. Uh, most of what we do when, we, when we're good stewards of the water and soil, we're being climate smart, but some wild and crazy things too to think about how do we assist with some of that migration in a way that we don't get escapees and all of that. So it's, it, it is part of a bigger com- uh, conversation that's very complex. We know our, our, our growing seasons have increased in length, right? We've got a great tool from the Mid- Midwestern Regional Climate Center that looks at changes since 1950. Much of central Ohio, we've already increased 10 to 30 days, oh, wow. 35 days in some of our, you know, like Delaware County, Union County, in terms of the growing season length. Uh, that length between our last spring freeze and first fall freeze. And um, we project that to increase in the future. So what might we grow, you know, plant-wise and, and, and crop-wise as well? So When we might plant our plants would change. It could, right? But then the variability comes into play. Um, you know, what? one of the things that we've seen from the winter and spring, yeah, overall warmer winters, but let's think back last year when Columbus hit 70 degrees three times in the month of February, that was the first time on record for a Columbus. Um, but then when we get freezes that still come along, you know, our last freeze last year, I think, was uh, around the last week of April. That's not a late freeze. But if things are breaking dormancy, plants and, and things are coming out earlier in the season, it can have a, a detrimental effect because of cold injury. So, yeah. I've tr- seen flowers springing with this warm weather we've been having. And I'm like, no, no, don't do that. No, not yet, please. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that come out, the crocuses and daffodils pushing up and, and tulips pushing up, I mean, that's pretty typical, right? But but some of the things, and, and I even heard the red-winged blackbirds singing this week, so that's kind of a harbinger of spring. But, um, you know, obviously when we get into more situations like March of 2012, when we had a lot of a string of 80, 85 degree days and we had our, our uh, fruit trees blossoming, right? And then you get these cold injuries, big cold air impacts our peaches, losing peaches, losing apples and things like that. That's when it becomes an economic issue because specialty crops are, are a big industry, right? And so thinking about, um, you know, the losses uh, due to cold injury is very much part of a warming winter and a, a, a warming trend here in Ohio. That's a really excellent point. I want to go to a call from Dan in Cleveland. Welcome to All Sides. Hello. Hi. Hi. I was calling in regards to this this change in the hardiness map. My my uh, my nephew lives down uh, off the coast of uh, North Carolina. And, um, okay. Um, off, off. I think we're getting an echo. Uh, are you listening to the show? Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me, let me silence. There we go. Yeah, that'll uh, be better. Thank you. All right. Anyhow, uh, he has sand. He, has, he lives near the, the base, uh, Camp Lejeune. And he has sand for soil, and um, would this be affected at all? Because it does affect, like if you plant a say a 25 foot, you, you plant a maple tree that usually grows 25 foot or taller. In a storm, sand won't hold the roots of a of a maple tree, whereas uh, good soil would, and because the roots will s- spread better. Uh, but um, also. You know, uh, does it does the sand um, content freeze faster because it's sand and it holds water better? That's a good question. I don't know how warming weather would impact the kind of soil 
that we have if it would impact it at all. Yeah, I mean, that's a mo- that's a long process, right, uh, of creating soil and, and, you know, from parent material and parent rock. But, you you know, the caller brings up a great uh, concept here, again, about the complex relationships, right? It's not as if our soil is just going to completely change to these other locations that the climate's moving toward, right? So how does that climate then interact with the types of soils and the type of topography and the geography that we have here? The effects of, you know, Lake Erie, we're still going to have Lake Erie effects, right? Uh, we're going to still have, a, you know, a lower uh, sun angle. We're still going to be coming, we're still going to have winters and we're coming off that winter season. And so all of that plays together. Uh, and, and these are questions, questions being researched, you know, uh, in terms of, yeah, the climate's warming, but then the, how does that interact with the soil um, nutrients, the the healthy, uh, you know, nutrients within the soil and minerals and that sort of thing is, is all part of this, right? And so we know that uh, those are not likely to change maybe as fast as the climate's changing. And so what will those interactions look like? I think that's a great point from the caller. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, gardening uh, gardening expert Deborah Knapke is joining us to explain what zone changes mean for our flowers and our vegetable gardens. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking about plant hardiness zones this hour, those guidelines for what kind of plants will and won't thrive in your area. The USDA recently updated the zone map, and most Ohioans now find themselves in a slightly warmer category. We're learning about what this means for farmers, gardeners, and the state of Ohio. Still with us is Aaron Wilson, an atmospheric scientist and professor at Ohio State University. And joining us now is Ohio's garden sage, Deborah Knapke, welcome to All Sides. Pleasure to be here. This is our first time doing a show together. It is the so, first time. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So, Deb, nearly all of Franklin County has transitioned in from uh, into the warmer 6B zone. Mm-hmm. And so has portions of Delaware County. For those of us who love to garden and grow vegetables, how big of a deal is it to move up half a zone? It's probably not as big of a deal as people are making it out to be because the gardeners already knew. We've already (laughs) been adapting. We've been noticing. I mean, every gardener is a nut on the weather. We watch our bugs, our insects, our bees. We watch the animals. We watch the way the ground changes with freeze-thaw cycles. We already knew we were dealing with a different kind of gardening than maybe, well, I know 20 years ago is different. So the maps there is just a mere representation of what we already know. It's just a confirmation for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So does this mean that old adage of plant after Mother's Day, it, does that still apply? I have to tell you, I've cheated for most of my life on that one. <laughs> but um, 
I still think that is mostly true for our warm season annuals and our um, and our vegetables that like warm ground. But, you know, we're coming up on St. Patty's Day in March, and that's always been the day or soon after to plant your peas and put in your coal crops uh, uh, like kale, kale, collards, etc. So we've already got our started in uh-huh. our dining room. Right. They just popped. I was very excited. <laughs> well, um, I mean, a seed is isn't that the greatest faith there is, is the <laughs> seed will germinate and grow. I yeah, I just find it incredible watching that happening my daughters are fascinated by the fact that they like turn back and forth and we're constantly Mm -hmm. rotating them right they can't see it happening but they're like how does it keep happening and they keep you know well they're searching for sun searching for light so it is just really cool um i lost track of your question of course that's about planting after planting after mother's day so now a lot of perennials i'll put in in april Mm. A lot of perennials, uh, especially the tough ones like hellebores, and a lot of our natives are going to start popping really soon. And so I'll, you know, if I need to lift and move, I will in April. But I'm cautious. I am careful with those warm season plants. They don't like that. We have a question from Andy in Columbus. Go ahead, Andy. Are you there? Hi. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm wondering whether camellias could be grown in the Columbus area now. I heard there's a hardier variety. Is that true? There is. There are some hardier camellias coming out. They're still pretty solid zone seven, though. They're not in the zone six, but I will tell you, since, as Aaron mentioned earlier, we've only gone down to six degrees Fahrenheit, that is zone seven. So we possibly could have gotten away with it this year so far but winter's not done with us yet so i i I can't say yes or no but i can say it's worth trying (laughs) and if you live in southern ohio you are in zone seven now yeah right right along the ohio river that bluegrass region area that comes up from kentucky that's zone seven And if you have a question for the Ohio Garden Sage about zone hardiness changes or gardening generally, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. You know, we talked about how early to plant, but part of this also means a longer summer, a longer fall. So it means a longer growing season. So, our, you know, I don't think we pulled our garden last year until late October. I mean, we just kind of let it go. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always kind of watching at the end with the tomatoes waiting for the freeze when you're going to pull and fry green tomatoes. That's right. Well, this year <clears throat> we went to um, Philadelphia and went to Mount Cuba and they had plants for sale. And we were there the last week of October and I bought 10 plants and I came home and I was planting them the 1st of November which I think is the latest I have ever planted perennials. I usually say I want to be done by October 15th, October 30th, the latest. So it's just a couple days. But even so, I didn't feel uncomfortable doing that, which is kind of scary. And a friend of mine didn't plant her bulbs till New Year's Day. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's a little late. (laughs) Don't do that at home. (laughs) You know, uh, Aaron and I kind of touched on this a bit in the beginning, but... Uh, should as someone who likes to intentionally plant native plants, plants that don't need additional mm-hmm. watering, should I be starting to rethink what that means? Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear from both of you. 
you know, and when I was in the room going, yes, when you were talking about that, what is native going to mean, especially if we start using some of our southern species? You know, I, I'm using the term near native. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I always keep in mind, what is the ecological niche of that plant? So just because it comes from the south doesn't mean that it's going to do well in my clay soil, which is also what the caller mentioned about sand, clay. So we're still going to have to be aware of the cultural needs of the plants that we embrace, like camellias. They're going to want acid soil. We don't have that. So that's another, you know, do I put it in a pot? Do I add aluminum sulfate or sulfur and all that? So it's a tricky question. Do I wrap them up in winter? Yes. And I never do. It's tough love in my garden. I don't have time. (laughs) Oh my gosh, survival of the fittest. It is. <laughs> yeah, Erin, I know we talked about, you said uh, down in Cincinnati, they're starting to think about different kinds of plants. And mm-hmm. I guess for even for someone who wants to prioritize native plants, I guess I need to start thinking about some of the stuff being grown in Southern Ohio. Yeah, I mean, we certainly can, you know, um, learn from our Southern neighbors as we think about these transitions. But I, I think it is important to think about all these other complex issues that come along with that. Uh, we haven't touched a lot on the water issue, uh, thinking about these plants as well. You know, one thing that we've certainly seen is an increase toward, <clears throat> excuse me, more annual precipitation, but heavier, more intense precip with intense droughts in between what we more call flash and droughts. Famine. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I often tease with uh, master gardeners and horticulturalists, like we need seeds and cultivars that can withstand both extreme flooding and extreme drought in the same year. So how do you design gardens around that that type of resilience, I think, is another question we really haven't touched on. And that's a perfect word, resilience and adaptability. And some of our best plants, best adaptable and resilient plants are weeds. (laughs) As evidenced by their growth. So think about that. We're going to have more weed pressure. And when you have your bug guy come on, there's going to be more bug pressure. So it's going to be interesting. So not only will the plants need to be adaptable, but so will we. We have a call from George in Mahoning County. Go ahead, George. Well, hello. Um, This question isn't technically about plants. It's more about a tree that's native to southern Ohio. Um, And I was wondering if the pawpaw tree will be able to thrive more in northern parts of Ohio now. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the pawpaw tree is the only member of that tropical family that stayed here when when the cold season came. Uh, 11,000 years ago, something like that. Oh, that's that's Aaron's bailiwick. But um, the pawpaws are doing well in Ohio. They have no problem growing all the way up to the lake. Oh, that's great to know. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a pawpaw festival somewhere in southern Ohio? In Athens. That's it. So... And just as a reminder, if you want to join this conversation with Aaron and Deborah and myself, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. And I do want to talk a little bit about bugs. I know we're going to get into it in the next segment with the bug guy, but, you know, anyone who gardens knows that bugs can come, funguses can come. Our entire cucumber crop was decimated last summer by some sort of bacteria or something that got in. So these are these things going to change as well for us? Yes. <laughs> I, that's the simple yeah, yeah. answer. Yeah. 
um, it will be interesting to see who wins. You know, which which fungi, fungi, however you want to say it, uh, funguses, we say all three, uh, bacteria, pests, diseases. Oh, my gosh, it's, it's going to be a real mixed bag. And I remember going to Florida and what they call a palmetto bug. Those are horrifying. Yes. Just well, full stop. Can you imagine in Ohio? I mean, I'm really happy they're down in Florida. Oh my God, I don't yes. want them up here. <laughs> For those who don't know, it's a giant cockroach with wings. Because if yeah. a cockroach couldn't be any worse, God put wings on it mm-hmm. and let it fly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're horrifying. So, um, not that I'm saying palmetto bugs are going to come here, but we're going to have some interesting species interactions. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of research that's being done on that, too. We've got colleagues like Maggie Lewis at OSU doing, you know, thinking about things like fall armyworm. A couple of years ago, huge numbers of fall armyworm, right? Destroying turf grass, grasses, lawns, and, and alfalfa and things like that. You know, when we have these warmer conditions existing well into fall, you get multiple gener- more generations of these insects, and it can potentially increase resistance as well um, to any, you know, pesticides. And so that's all going to be part of the game uh, moving into the future. Uh, and really already is. We're, we're, we're seeing that now, and mm-hmm. we're likely to see that continue into the future. And one other effect of that is that we have more CO2 in the atmosphere, and we have some plants that are really good at using more carbon. They're C4 pathway plants, and most of them are weeds and grasses and sedges. And then we have other plants that can take up nitrogen better so that that helps photosynthesis and the poster child for having both c4 and nitrogen uptake is poison ivy oh so more vigorous poison ivy hmm i'm glad i'm immune to it (laughs) i'm one of those people that just doesn't get it although i know exposure Mm -hmm. can like weaken that immunity over time but so far knock on wood so good Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. <laughs> no, I know our house is divided. My husband and firstborn are not immune. Me and my littlest are immune. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Found that one out the hard way. Yeah. I'm the poison ivy remover in our house. Same. <laughs> uh, so if we are going to experiment with plants, maybe from the seven zone or maybe the warmer climates, uh, what steps should we be taking to protect them? I know you said it's fighter like die in your garden, mm-hmm. but you know, if I, if I want to baby my plant, especially because, you know, doesn't mean that we're not going to get a negative 20 day. Mm-hmm. How do I protect them? Um, first of all, find those microclimates in your garden where you know there's more protection. What is a microclimate in a garden? So... <clears throat> Southeast side of my garden that's kind of in a, I have a lot of elevation change in my garden, but there's a spot that I know stays a little bit warmer. Oh. So, yeah. So that's where I cheat. Places with maybe more direct sun all day? (laughs) Uh, Good sun, but also I have a brick wall for my greenhouse. So that brick wall radiates heat. And that's how I get certain plants through that would normally make it in our winters. And I also know where there are cold spots for plants that will stay hopefully longer in their dormancy and not break early. Because when they break early is when they lose their their buds, flower buds, and or leaf buds. So understanding how your garden ebbs and flows in heat and coolness, those are your microclimates. Buy a fence, buy a brick wall, a stone wall. So if you're trying to cheat on the, the zones, that's what you can do. 
We have a call from Drew in Columbus. Welcome to All Sides. Hi. Um, yeah, my question is about the foods that we eat, the fruits and vegetables that we grow, and if the time of year that we eat them, if our culinary seasons are changing. Oh, that's a good question. And the simple answer to that, again, is yes. We're getting... Plants aren't always keeping up with the changes. Some plants seem better at holding back, and other plants saying, "Woohoo, it's getting warm. I think I'll bloom." Hmm. Like apricots, you know, apricots are a tough one. We, I think, three f- years out of four, you're going to lose your apricot blossoms here in Ohio. And I think with our ups and downs, that will become maybe four out of four. <laughs> I don't oh, know. That's sad. But um, our food. It, it is changing, and we get longer periods of tomatoes and peppers now. That, that's that been something, you know, so we're getting creep. Will we be growing citrus anytime soon? I do grow citrus, but it's in a pot, and then it comes into my house. Yeah. Erin, so. you talked about that, I think, with peaches, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... One of these real challenges seems to be instability in food supply because they'll start to bloom, they'll start to grow, and then it'll freeze again because it's technically not out of the norm to freeze in early April. Yeah, that's correct. And and so, you know, what we grow here locally versus what we get from elsewhere that are also mm-hmm. experiencing climate change and impacts as well. Because it's not um, just Ohio. It's not just Ohio, right? And no. so thinking about where our food that we eat is grown and, and how those conditions are changing is very important. Um, I'm, you know, also thinking about some other resilient techniques from, you know, back to the previous question about gardening and, you know, from a water perspective, how do we limit evaporation? How do we mm-hmm. get the, keep the soil moist? Those are, you know, how do we improve irrigation? Uh, and then we haven't even brought up like hybrids and genetics that are also a part mm-hmm. of our horticultural um, reality, right? Moving forward, can we have more drought-resistant plants or more heat-resistant yeah. plants as well? So, a lot of lot of variables, a lot of moving pieces with with this story. There oh is my. A- oh, so I'm I was so- going to say, anytime you open up a seed catalog, it's overwhelming the varieties mm-hmm. you can choose from. There's such a lot of research going on on flood and drought tolerance, both sides. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to be creating gardens to deal with it, like rain gardens, capturing water, slowing water so that our sewer systems are not inundated. So it, there's a lot in this. It's a huge, huge discussion. We could be here for days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to live out in Denver, Colorado. So we did a lot of sage, a lot of lilac, a lot of like drought-resistant planting in particular because it is so like feast and famine out there. And yeah. We get a lot of hail, which is a whole other dynamic. And I have no idea if we'll be getting more hail in Ohio, but that was a wild experience. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, with severe storms, that we, we, yeah. we don't, you know, uncertainty is a little bit larger, you know, because it's a, a isolated, it's a smaller scale event. Uh, observations and trends are, are a little bit more trickier to detect versus like heavy rainfall or mm-hmm. changes in heat waves and cold waves. So, um, we, 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 we're not certain, right? There's more uncertainty associated with that, although the atmosphere is more energetic and the potential for more severe, certainly extreme rainfall uh, is, is likely to continue. Yeah, we'd get like golf ball size hail about once a year, maybe. Lots of pea-sized hail. Mm-hmm. No roof in, in the Denver area would last more than like 10 years. Mm. It was wild. Wow. I want to take a call from Mike and Marion. Yes, hello. Hi, welcome to All Sides. Thank you very much. Um, I heard your question from a listener about pawpaw trees, and I have a, a pawpaw mystery I wanted to ask about. Um, our pawpaw trees do very well, and they always have a lot of little 
buds, and they always have a lot of little pawpaws, very tiny. Uh, and some years, they all just, just disappear. And I don't know whether the little buds and pawpaws, usually it's the little tiny paw. Whoop, we, oh. lo- we lost him. Yeah, he might have dipped out. But so okay. why why would his pawpaws be disappearing? Well, some of it, and Aaron kind of <laughs> gestured, some of it might be due to um, somebody munching. What we The technical term is herbivory. Ah, <laughs> there's a critter eating, involved. There's a critter, and I'll tell you... Um, the raccoons will climb to the top of a tree and just break the branches off and then sit down there and feast. I have tried <laughs> I have tried different um, um, strategies to save my pawpaws, and it doesn't happen. But also, um, sometimes the trees cannot support them for whatever reason, and they will drop them hmm. and uh, immaturely. Immaturely? Yeah, <laughs> and the wildlife know exactly when they're ripe. Yes, perfectly ripe. I'm mm-hmm. going to get them right, and that's a that could be a short window. And yeah, no. you know, we're trying to. We've got folks at OSU that are looking at you know market value pawpaws mm-hmm. and, and being able to increase that that uh, shelf life. Like yeah. rabbits are the bane of my garden existence. Yes. yes, I we plant a lot of like lilies and things that are supposed to be poisonous oh. to them. So no, not anymore. Um, they've adapted. The deer they have eat adapted. my marigolds, which was, like I was really stunned by. That seems to go off and on. You know, marigolds, for some animals, it deters them, and other animals, it doesn't. And I think there are just some rabbits that say, I'm eating anything that's here. I'm trying it. Looking at I've we constantly joke in our house that, you know, we're going to find new ways to make rabbits stew because they are <laughs> such the bane of my existence. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And coming up, we're going to talk with an entomology expert on how the kinds of bugs in our yards are changing. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking about the plant hardiness zone map this hour, that brightly colored map of the United States that helps gardeners determine what will and won't thrive in their backyards. The USDA recently updated the map, moving most places in Ohio into slightly warmer categories. We've been exploring what that means for our gardens and our climate, and we're now joined by gardening expert Benjamin Phillip, a lecturer in entomology for The Ohio State University. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks so much for having me. Still with us is Deborah Knapke, Ohio's Garden Stage, and Aaron Wilson, state climatologist of Ohio and a professor at The Ohio State University as well. So, Benjamin, I want to ask about how these warmer summers and uh, warmer winters are affecting the bugs. And I want to just start with ticks, because it's something I've actually noticed in my personal life. There seem to be a lot more ticks, even over Thanksgiving and Christmas when I was with family in northeastern Ohio. There were a ton of ticks. What's going on? Because I don't think they were here 10, 20 years ago. So we're seeing certainly the effect of climate change on uh, a lot of of insects and other arthropods like like the ticks. Um, We're seeing you know, some 
range expansion, um, and we are certainly noticing them more uh, than we used to. There's a lot of effects of uh, climate change there, but also other effects of, of the types of um, animals that they feed on. So there's a lot of change with, you know, where we have locations of, of, of deer and, and small mammals like mice. Um, but people certainly are noticing uh, a lot more, a lot more ticks in, 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 in different arthropods, different insects um, in general. I'm also wondering how is these changing zones affecting our pollinators like butterflies and bees? Well, that's a really good question because as we see a change in um, the the types of of climates that we have in locations, obviously that's we've been talking through this this show about the change in in plants that um, that would go along with the, the change in temperatures and in Obviously, we have a lot of, of very close association between the insects, these pollinators with uh, flowering plants. Uh, so it not only might be a change in kind of the distribution of some of these plants, but also um, when these plants are available. I mean, we, we, we think about these insects that they, they kind of go out of, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, in the winter, they're, they're still there. Uh, but they need to show up to this buffet at the right time. And if, if you start to get uh, um, uh, the wrong timing, you show up for the wrong reservation time, you're going to miss on miss, miss your opportunity to eat. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, obviously a big challenge. Oh, I hadn't considered that. Uh, Deb, what, what can we be planting for our pollinators? I think uh, there's been a... You know, we've always liked when there's long periods of blooms for our plants. And I think we might keep an eye out for those plants that do stay in bloom longer. The problem we have, and I know Benjamin is well aware of this, is that we have some specialist insects, bugs, etc., and generalists. Now, the generalists can eat from just about anything, but it's our specialist bees and our specialist insects that like this plant, this nectar, pollen, this leaf, whatever for nest building, that that's when we're going to start seeing dropping out of insects. So biodiversity in our gardens is key. And as much as you can to diversify the better it will be for insects. We have a call from Laura in Worthington. Go ahead. Hi, I have a question about a bug infestation that happened in my yard this year called leaf weevil. There are lots of little notches gone from every leaf of trees and plants like viburnum. The only thing they didn't really touch were hellbores. Um, these were more like perennial plantings that were not there were more landscape landscape oriented. Have you guys heard of this? Uh, Benjamin, what's a weevil? So a, a weevil is actually a really diverse uh, a group of, of beetles. Um, and they, um, I, I think they have, you know, a, a face that a mother could love. They have a very long snout that, that kind of reminds me of, of what you would expect to see on an elephant. Um, but they they can be pests. They can they can be big problems. There are some that are um, kind of generalists where they'll they'll move around and they'll eat you know notches out of leaves. Um, and, and sometimes it can be a um, a problem that needs to be dealt with. Other times it can be more of just an aesthetic problem, like your your plants have you know small 
gnaw marks out of the the sides of the leaves. Um, so it, it varies. Again, it's a super diverse group, um, but uh, uh, yeah, they can they can be they can be problems. Do they serve a purpose, or are they just here to annoy us? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, they certainly do. Um, they 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 are are food for other for other uh, arthropods and 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 uh, birds will eat them depending on where you might find these. Um, so they certainly. Uh, as an as an entomologist, I, I think they all certainly have some sort of purpose. They might not always be our favorites, but so but put my bird feeder above them. That's yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. There you go. Uh, Deb, is there a way to treat for them? And I guess maybe like a, also a way to treat if you're not into pesticides. So for me, if it's just cosmetic, I don't treat. If if it is on my vegetable crops. Oh, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. But you'll see me kind of brushing things off or um, using diatomaceous earth, uh, Oh, that stuff's great. Yeah, and underneath. But I, I try really hard to let nature do her thing. And usually if something shows up, there's a control not far behind it as long as you haven't been using herbicides, pesticides, etc. in your garden. And your neighbors aren't using them either because... The weevil comes and the control is not far behind the predator. And ah. that's what I depend on for the most part. So put the bird feeder put above. Put the bird feeder. I, that was the perfect solution. <laughs> Although we have a real problem with squirrels getting in our bird feeder. Well, that's another thing. And you can't much control for it. My my six-year-old has made it her mission to scream loudly at them whenever they're in our bird feeder. We live in suburbia, so it's like, I have no idea what my neighbors think, but it'll be like seven in the morning and she'll be out there going, hey, hey. <laughs> but uh, so, Ben, you know, we talked about pollinators and beetles, but I mean, what about some of the more irritating bugs like mosquitoes? Yeah, I mean, we are seeing um, seeing some changes with distribution. Uh, we ac- I actually have some colleagues here in the uh, Department of Entomology that are um, working to look. You know, they're doing some some currently doing some 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 lab tests, um, looking at um, the northern house mosquito, um, and they recently published a paper that. That basically showed that uh, this this increase in, in temperature in a lab can actually cause the these mosquitoes to delay um, going into something called diapause, which is this state of arrested development, which is what a lot of insects will do um, during uh, the winter or when things are just not favorable for growing. Uh, so when it comes to a mosquito, the the idea is well, if they're averting going into that state then they actually do um they they have a longer period where they can feed on us and since you know the northern house mosquito can can transmit things like west nile virus that's that's really important for you know human health and something to consider um so these changing climates like it 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 obviously can have a, a a big impact not only on where we're seeing these insects but then if we if we're you know looking at how they might impact us there, there can be obviously pretty profound changes. And Aaron, we talked about um, sort of flood and dry spells, and I know standing water breeds mosquitoes. So, I wonder if those more intense periods of rain might also be contributing. It's certainly, you know, a possibility if the water is standing, obviously, and um, you know, uh, and not draining off, and and those are things are always, you know, 
important to consider. I know gardeners think about that drainage in terms all of the their time. drainage, their mm-hmm. their barrels, you know, and, and, and rain barrels and things like that, and, and thinking about what those standing water opportunities are. I want to take a call from Katie in Dublin. Hi, we have a beautiful old tulip tree in our front yard. And last year we had a terrible aphid infestation on it. Um, We didn't realize what it was until it was kind of far into the infestation. And we did get some ladybugs to release to help um, get rid of those aphids. But I was wondering, is there anything we can do this year to help prevent that from happening again? This might well, be a, lady... a question oh, sorry, for both ahead. Ben and yeah. Benjamin and me. You first, Benjamin. Oh, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say, you know, ladybugs love aphids. Um, one of the challenges with ladybugs is that they are pretty. They're, they're generalists, um, so they will certainly eat uh, a lot of aphids. But then they kind of they can move on to to other things. Um, so you know, I, I I applaud people that are are interested in the you know biological control of pests um, because that's a great way. It's a great tool in our toolbox. Um, but I yeah, uh, you know, it can be a challenge sometimes to to put these you know you put these ladybugs there and. Pretty soon they just kind of wander off and they go elsewhere. So that that's um, you know can be a frustration to a lot of uh, um, a, a lot of gardeners and in, in, in homeowners. But I'll let you I'll let you take over there, Deb. So if it's a really big tree, this this won't work very well. Uh, but aphids are soft bodied. If you spray them with a hard spray of water, they're done. They they their little bodies just kind of can't take it. <clears throat> so there's that. And again, if if you are not spraying or using pesticides, or whatever in the area, those lady beetles will come back. Uh, and there are other there are other um, aphid eaters out there. <laughs> so, and a lot of times we don't see them. So maybe be patient. And if there's an infestation this year, just keep a watch out and see what comes and gets them. And uh, so, yeah. Um, Anyway, so good luck with your aphids. That was Deborah Knapke, Ohio's Garden Sage. Thank you for your time today. It was great to be here. And thanks to Benjamin Phillips, an entomology professor at The Ohio State University. Thanks so much. And Aaron Wilson, a professor of climate science at The Ohio State University as well. My pleasure. Thank you.